0: is. Huh? I didn't think so. Well, it's good to have you here. So we are uh, in a series that we just started uh, last weekend on the life of Joseph. We're in the book of Genesis. Uh, you can turn there if you have your Bibles or your devices or whatever you're reading the Bible from these days. And the week before that, we did a walk through the Old Testament, and I know many of you were here for that, and the whole goal of that was just to help us get a a better handle on the Old Testament. I know it's big, and it's long, and it's easy to get bogged down and not quite understand the flow of the OT and, you know, where we are in it. And so we memorized some, some key uh, people and events and some hand motions to go along with that. If you're here, you might remember that. So we're going to just remember Genesis. And if you weren't here, don't worry, we'll get you up to speed. If you were here, then you know you're all over this. But I just, let's all stand up for just a moment, right? Just one more time and then I won't make you stand again during the sermon, all right? Is that fair? Some of you are like, no, that's not fair, okay? <laughs> so let's try this. All right, so in Genesis, we have really eight things. We have four uh, events and four people that we want to remember. So really just eight things. And those events are, first of all, you're with me, creation, all right? So we're going to remember God creating the world. So we say creation. And then next comes the fall. Genesis chapter 3, we have Adam and Eve in the garden, and they fall in the, because of sin and their relationship with God. So we have creation, fall, and then what comes next? We have the flood, right? So things don't go so well. We have the flood, we have the ark and Noah, and then we have nations, right? So we have Tower of Babel and people spreading out around the earth. So if we put those four things together, that gives us, let's do it together creation, fall, flood, Nations. All right, very good. Then we have four people we want to remember. The first is Abraham. And Abraham was a man that God made a covenant with. And he said, you will have descendants as numerous as the stars in the heavens. So we point up at stars, remember, Abraham. And then he had one son of promise whose name was Isaac. So we kind of take Isaac down and we cradle him. He's the baby of promise. And then he has a son whose name was Jacob, And remember, he wrestled with God. So we kind of do some arm wrestling here. And then he has a son. Actually, he has a whole bunch of sons. His name is changed to Israel. And he has 12 sons. And one of them's name is Joseph, right? And Joseph's the guy that we're talking about. So let, let's put all that together if we can. Eight things. Here we go. Remember? Creation, fall, flood, nations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, very good. You can sit down. All right. So now, Joseph is a guy that we are that we're talking about, and um, the story of Joseph, in fact, comprises about twenty-eight percent of the book of Genesis. So when we think of Genesis, the story about Joseph takes more room and space than anyone or, or anything else. It's a big story. There's a lot going on. And as we said last week, of course, it's not just about Joseph because our our story is never just about us It's always beyond us. God is always not only doing things in us, but through us and around us. But last week we talked, in chapter 37 is where we pick up the story. Chapter 37 of Genesis. And we talked about um, Joseph's highly dysfunctional family. And that's putting it lightly. If you're here, you might remember. So his dad's name was Jacob. And I won't go into all the details, but Jacob ends up with four wives. It's a long, messed up story with some trickery going on, all that stuff. Shouldn't have been this way. He shouldn't have Four wives, but he did have four wives. We talked about how often as people we do really stupid things, and yet we have a God who's bigger than the dumb things we do, and he comes in and does good things anyways. It's a theme we'll see again and again in the book of Genesis. Four wives, uh, 12 sons. Now, the 11th of those sons, his name, was Joseph, and I said, you know, you can just imagine the family dynamics, like maybe some of you feel like you come from really dysfunctional families, and you know, you probably do, I, I don't know, but this family, again, can you imagine just getting together for birthdays, and, and, and Thanksgiving, and all that stuff, just the dynamics, with four wives who, who didn't really get along, and, and 12 sons who, to say they didn't get along was to put it lightly, you might remember, Joseph was the favorite of, of his of his father. He was the favorite. So there's a lot of favoritism going on there. And uh, remember, he gives him a coat that he doesn't give to any of his other sons. And so, uh, and he has dreams that no one else has. And the sons, they, they hate their brother, Joseph. They're jealous of him. They end up physically assaulting him, uh, selling him into slavery. And really, that's kind of where we ended the story last week. And now we come into chapter 38. And chapter 38 is a, a bit of a detour from Joseph's story. In fact, in chapter 38, we're not going to read about Joseph at all. And it's a, it's a weird chapter. And in fact, we're uh, reading the passages each week up here, but we didn't do it this week. And there's kind of a reason for that. If you read through the whole chapter, you'll know why we elected not to do that. Let me just read for you what one commentator says about chapter 38. Chapter 38 of Genesis is a puzzling, disorderly little story featuring a murderous deity, prostitution, deception, and near incest. It's completely unsuitable for preaching. So we're going to do it, all right? Like, and in fact, most, most pastors just skip chapter 38 and make a couple of veiled references to it and move on. And let me just say, I'm not so brave that I would, I mean, there's going to be some verses that aren't in your notes. And might, you'll have to go and read your own Bible and find out what I'm talking about. But I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive into this passage. Father, we uh, thank you for this week. We thank you for uh, you being with us Um, You guiding us, you blessing us, uh, working for good in spite of the dumb things we do. We thank you for your sovereignty and your goodness to those who know you, who are called by you and who love you. And I pray this morning as we open up uh, chapter 38, uh, a confusing, a, a difficult passage that you might take it and make it clear to us. Show us what you have for us now. We need to hear from you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. So chapter 38, it's going to begin in your notes. We're going to talk about some bad actors in good times. Bad actors in good times. That's not uh, something we're unfamiliar with. Probably many of us know people around us who are living in good times, living in prosperity, but they're just making dumb choices, sinful choices. And that's kind of what we have in chapter 38. And chapter 38 begins this way in, in verse 1. Now it happened that at that time, and that time is now Joseph has been sold into slavery and he's in Egypt. So this is kind of a tangent story that's going on at the same time. But instead of being in Egypt uh, with Joseph, which is where we'll be the rest of the time in this uh, series, we're now with the brothers in Canaan. It says, so during that time it was that Judah... So again, Judah's number four in the birth order. He's not the oldest son. He's not the the one with the birthright. He's number four. Went down from his brother. So he, he left his family and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and he went into her. So Abraham and Isaac, grandpa and great-grandpa of this family had warned um, everyone about marrying Canaanites, right? So they're all foreigners in a foreign land. And this is not about race, it's about uh, mixed spiritual marriages. And, and here's what they knew. God knew that if, if they married people who did not have faith in God, that it would compromise their marriages, that uh, they would tend towards idolatry. And we just went through the book of Judges and found out that that's exactly what happened. And Judah knows this, he knows better, he knows that he needs to marry somebody of faith, but instead he goes and takes a Canaanite wife. He's just going to do what he wants to do. Verse three, and she conceived and she bore a son and called his name Ur. So they're gonna have some kids here. The first name is Ur. I don't know where that comes from or like I don't know if she was like what should we name him? And he's like Ur. I don't know. I'm not sure. And she conceived again and bore a son and called his name Onan. So now they have two sons. And yet she bore another son and she called his name Shelah. And Judah was in Chizib when she bore him. And Judah uh, took a wife. So now we're just skipping uh, forward again. And now um, their oldest son is old enough to get married. So maybe he's 16, 17 years old. And Judah took a wife. So it was an arranged marriage for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. So we just covered a whole lot of territory and years here. So it says that when Ur was old enough, Judah arranges a marriage with a a young woman named Tamar, who was also a Canaanite. So he's keeping this mixed marriage thing going on spiritually. But we're told that that Ur was so wicked that God took him out. And we're not Told what specifically his wickedness was. It makes you think though, doesn't it? Because think about this, like Joseph's brothers, think about what they did to him. They, they physically assaulted him, they abused him, they, they left him for dead, then they sold him into slavery and God didn't punish them for that. So he must have been some special kind of of wicked here. And then going on in verse 8 is where the story really starts to get confusing for people in our culture. And then Judah, that's the father, says to Onan. So now he comes to the second born. And he says, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So this phrase, perform the duty of a brother-in-law. All right, this is one word in Hebrew. One word. And what scholars will tell us is that what this means is that it was so understood that it needed no explanation. One word would be enough for anyone in that culture to understand what's going on. Of course, we don't understand what's going on because this is foreign to us in our culture. But here was the custom generally. And that is that if a man and a woman got married and, and they didn't have any children and the husband dies um, and he has a younger brother, that it was the responsibility of that younger brother not necessarily to to marry her but to have relations with her so that she could have a child and have offspring. And the offspring would not be his children, but it would be the child of the brother who's, who's dead. So you're doing this on his behalf so that he would have offspring and, and continue to have a line uh, in the family. Now if a son was born, the son would have all the rights of not the natural father, but the father that had passed away. So let me just illustrate for you why this is a problem for Onan in, in particular. So we have Judah, and as we've already read, Judah Judah has three sons. Ur is the oldest, and then Onan, and then Shelah. And so... Ur gets married, it's an arranged marriage to Tamar. But they have no children. And because of his wickedness, Ur dies. And so now Judah says, Onan, it's your job to impregnate Tamar, basically. All right? So this is what you're going to do. Now, the thing is, here's what Onan knows. If Tamar has a boy, it's going to be bad for Onan. And here's why. Because with Ur now out of the picture, Onan is considered the, the you know, the one with the birthright. He's going to get the double inheritance. Let's just put it that way. He's going to get the money and the house and all the stuff that Judah leaves behind. Except that if Tamar has a son, then all of this goes to the son instead. And Onan doesn't want it to go to the son. So Onan makes sure that Tamar doesn't get pregnant. And what we find is that God considers this to be a a very wicked thing. All right. So going on in the story then, it tells us that Judah goes to Sheila and says, now I need you to get Tamar pregnant. That, that, that's the plan. That's where we're going to go here. I know. This is a really weird story. All right. And uh, then it goes on to just say, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So basically what's going on here is Judah is blaming Tamar for the death of his first two sons. Now, we don't really know. Was he uh, self-deluded? Uh, was he just ignorant? You know, sometimes as parents, we can, we can be like that, can't we? We can kind of ignore things about our kids. And maybe other people be like, are you sure this is good? Are you sure? And we'll be like, well, you don't know him like I know him. And so I, maybe that's what's going on. Maybe Judah's just making excuses for his sons. But basically, he blames Tamar. And he lost his first two sons to Tamar. So he doesn't want to give Shelah. Or you know, he's afraid he's going to lose all of his sons. Um, to this woman who, I don't know, maybe he thinks that she's cursed. So he says to Tamar, you go back and live with your dad and wait until Sheila, who's too young, is old enough and then I'll give Sheila to you and, and, and you'll have a husband and all that. But Judah is never going to do that. He's never going to keep his promise. Uh, and after some time, Tamar figures that out. So some time goes by and she finally realizes, I'm never going to get Husband. So now she's stuck. All right. She's legally she's stuck. She can't just go marry someone else because she's betrothed now to Sheila, but Sheila's never going to be given to him. And so she has no legal recourse. She's a a woman without power. In that day, she she can't get a lawyer and suited. None of that stuff. She's just stuck in this situation. Verse 12. Because the story isn't weird enough, it goes on. In the course of time. The wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. So so Judah, the father, his wife dies. And when Judah was comforted, so so typically two weeks or so would be a time of mourning or a time of comforting. When that was up, he went to Timnah to his uh, sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira the Dulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Tim. I know this just feels like a soap opera, right? You're trying to keep all the lines clear in your mind here. Uh, your father-in-law is going to Tim that is sure as she, she took off her widow's garments Right, because she's still mourning the loss of her husband, and 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 covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and she sat at the entrance to Enem, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given, or he had not been given to her in marriage. So. Um, Judah's wife is now out of the story and it's sheep shearing time in, in Canaan. So, uh, they would go and they would bring their sheep and they would shear them. But there was also this big cultic festival that went on at that time as well. And, uh, you know, people in that region believed that if you engaged with a, uh, cultic prostitute, because the story isn't weird enough, um, then it would harness fertility magic for your flock. And your flock would multiply. So when they would come, it's kind of what all the guys did when they went to the sheep shearing conference. And, uh, and then there would be prostitutes there and they would believe that if they engaged in it and paid her some money, that uh, their flocks would be fruitful and multiply because again, the story isn't weird enough. And then Tamar kind of has seen everything that's going on. She's stuck in her situation with no recourse and she learns that Judah has recently become a widower and Tamar knows that once Judah is done mourning that he's probably going to get on Tinder and, you know, uh, go do some stuff. She knows him well enough and so she disguises herself as a cult prostitute and she's going to hang out in the road where she knows Judah's going to come by because she knows what kind of man he is. And she knows he's going to take the bait. Verse 15. Now when Judah saw her, so he's coming into town and he sees her. He doesn't know it's her because she's wearing a disguise. He thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and he said, Come, let me come into you for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law right? Because this isn't creepy enough. And she said, what will you give me, right? That you may come into me. And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. She has a child. So Tamar is all business, all right? She knows exactly what she's trying to do here and they decide that the payment for her services is going to be a goat. But Judah doesn't have a goat with him and he can't find a goat dispensing ATM. And so what they decide is that she needs some kind of security. And so basically what he gives her is his license and social security card. He he gives a signet. A signet is not a a ring. It's actually like a a round um, cylinder that you would have on a little row around your neck and it's what you used you when you were uh, signing legal documents so again it's kind of like his uh, license and and he gave his staff which would been carved and had his name in it be very unique to him and so Judah agrees to the terms of, of this business transaction uh, they complete their business uh, they go their separate ways uh, Judah wants to be good on his word so he has someone take a goat to her but they can't find her and so Judah just gives up on the search, and that's kind of where it is. Now, now, meanwhile, while all this is going on, let's remember where Joseph is, right? Joseph is now a slave in Egypt, and, and Judah and Tamar are free. So, so Joseph, due to, to no sin of him, uh, anything that he had done, he's just now he's stuck in this situation in Egypt, While his family are free to go on with life. And they are, but they're just doing stupid things. They're making terrible choices during this time. They're having sex outside of marriage. They're deceiving each other. They're sinning and they're making just stupid, foolish choices. Right? Again, how often do we see this from people who have every advantage in life. And yet they just do one dumb thing after another. And yet, as the story continues, we discover good From bad times. And again, this is a a common theme that we find, and not just in the book of Genesis, not just in the story of Joseph, but in the Bible. Good things that God does from stupid things that people do. So in chapter 38, verse 24, we pick up the story. Now, about three months later, that is after Judah and Tamar had their business transaction, um, Judah was told, somebody came in and said, Tamar, your daughter in law, has been immoral moreover she is pregnant by immorality and Judah says bring her out and let her be burned so remember he doesn't know that the prostitute was his, his daughter-in-law so when he hears that Tamar is pregnant he assumes that she's been unfaithful right because she's promised to Tamar Although he never plans to give Tamar, or, I'm sorry, she's promised to Shelah and Judah's never going to let that happen, but he says, oh yeah, well she's, she's been immoral, so let's just, like let's burn her. As one commentator said, Judah's reaction suggests that he saw an opportunity to get her out of the way once and for all. Notice there's no investigation, there's no trial, there's no defense, there's no attempt to find the guy. Right? This is very sexist here, right? Like, oh, we're just going to get rid of, of her. Story goes on. And she was being brought out. She sent word to her father-in-law. This is great. She said, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them, right? He knew that they were his. And, and he said, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. So Judah is forced to admit that the items were his. Now, this would have been a surprise to him because he doesn't know this at this point in the story. And he has to suddenly realize that he had a sexual relationship with his daughter-in-law, and she is pregnant, and he is the father, because like I said, this story isn't messed up enough already. Now, when he says that she's more righteous, we need to understand what's going on here. He isn't saying that her actions were not sinful, because they were sinful, right? She had sex, she fooled her father-in-law and had sex with him, but, but what he's saying is that he, he was more guilty than her in this situation. And so she is more, which is a relative term, she is more righteous than he is. Tamar eventually gives birth to twins, Zara and Perez, which is just a really interesting story right there, which we're not going to get into. But here's the thing. Tamar was determined to have a child. Determined. She endures hardship. She endures deceit. Uh, having to wait for many years on a promise that somebody doesn't intend to keep. At the same time, though, she also resorts to deception, uh, to prostitution, to sex with her father-in-law. What she did was sinned. And it's really interesting if you've ever read commentaries on this passage. It's a strange thing that commentators often kind of rush in. And say all these glowing things about Tamar. And, and, and how great it was that she was determined that, that Judah's line continued. But the bottom line is she sinned. She didn't trust God to solve her problem. She took matters into her own hands. But here's what God did. God used Judah and Tamar's sinful actions to bring about something good because two children were born. And one of those carries on the line of Judah. And some of the descendants, just a few of the descendants that will come through this line are King David and Jesus Christ himself. So God does an amazingly great thing through a terrible thing that people do. Again, we see this, this concept that God works all things for the good of those who love him, who have been called by him. God has this ability to work great things out of the worst things that we do, and in fact, when you come to the New Testament and you come to Matthew chapter one, there's a genealogy there, right? And sometimes you read the genealogies and think, "Oh man, this is so boring, and what's this all about?" But in that genealogy in, in Matthew one, there are five women who are listed in that genealogy of Jesus. Tamar is the first one, and. And then Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And then finally, the fifth one is Mary herself. All four of the women who are listed before Mary are all Gentiles. And here's what one commentator says. He says, each of these four women had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union. Accordingly, each of them prepares the way for Mary, whose marital situation is also peculiar. Given the fact that she is pregnant, but has not yet had sexual relationships with her betrothed. Abraham Kuravilla says this about this passage, and I love this. He says, Judah is the first person in the Bible to acknowledge his own sin. And let's think about that for a minute. We're in uh, the 38th chapter of Genesis, and Judah is the first one to acknowledge his own sin, and this is no small thing because this is a turning point For Judah, his admission of guilt ends up being a life altering thing. And from this point forward, as we go through uh, the rest of this book and the story of Joseph, you're going to notice as we go along that from here on out, Judah is only portrayed positively. He becomes the, the leader of his brothers, even though he's fourth in line. He's an instrument of reconciliation, ultimately. Uh, he offers his own life in exchange for his youngest brother, Benjamin, and he becomes a blessing to other people. And this is God's work in Judah's life. But Judah is responding. He's responding by repenting, by by confessing, by acknowledging his sin. Judah is number four in the birth order, but by the end of the book, he's going to be elevated to firstborn with the birthright. Judah repents. That's kind of a New Testament word we would use that he repents of a sin. We use that word repent, and the word repent basically means to change your mind. It means to change your way of thinking to repent means you were thinking one thing, you were going in one direction, which certainly describes Judah, right? He's all about deceit and all about selfishness. And then suddenly he has a change in his thinking. And he suddenly recognizes that the things he was pursuing were wrong, that, that it was sinful. And he admits this. This is what Jesus was calling people to when he was ministering in fact in Mark chapter 1 verse 14 it says this Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand and notice what he says repent and believe repent and believe and you have this concept all the way through the New Testament repent and believe you need to change your way of thinking you need to change the way that you're thinking about sin you need to change the way that you're kind of making excuses for the things that you're doing and you need to believe You need to believe in Jesus. And these two things go hand in hand. You can't believe in Jesus without repenting. Because what scripture says basically is not believing is to move away from God. To say I'm going to live my life and my way and on my terms. And to repent is to say now I understand that's wrong. I'm going to change my thinking and I'm going to believe in Jesus. And he will be my Lord and my Savior. In Philippians 2.13 it tells us this. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love this verse because it reminds us of something. Right? It's not up to us to figure all this out. This is what God does in us. God is working in Judah. And as we would say in Philippians, it's God who's, who's causing him, him to will and to work. It's God who's prompting him to change. It's not because he's better than anyone else. It's that God is prompting him and he's responding. And the same thing is true for us today as believers. It is God who works in us. It's God who prompts us. It's God who makes us feel guilty about our sin at times and who's encouraging us to move, to repent, and to move towards him and to live for Christ. And that should be an encouragement for us as believers. Because it's not all up to us to figure it out. We have a God who loves us and cares for us. And so when you're going through life and you're, you're starting to feel guilty about your sin, instead of, you know, just kind of running away from what God's doing, we should run towards him. Because it's God who's preparing us for that. It's God who's working in our hearts. And so repentance becomes this wonderful, beautiful, I know we think of it as humiliating and have to confessing our sin, but it's a wonderful, beautiful thing that God does in us. And so we have this, this strange story in chapter 38 that oftentimes just doesn't even get addressed at all. Now, now meanwhile, we have Joseph. And I, I want to talk about Joseph just for a minute as, as a good man in bad times. So we have Judah over here. And he's living in good times. And doing dumb things. Although God is is working in his life. But over here in Egypt we have Joseph. And the, the drama is continuing to play out. Now Joseph during all of this stuff over here. He is a slave in Egypt. But by the way. Because of Judah and his brothers. right? so it's easy sometimes. Look and go. How, how is this even fair? We talked about this last week. Judah and his brothers Right? They, have, they, they have Joseph sold into slavery. They're getting on with their lives and now he's, he's kind of stuck. I'm going to put it this way. He's kind of living in the meantime, if you will. Now in chapter 37... Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. He's sold into slavery, and now as a slave, he has no no rights, no uh, legal recourse to get out of his situation. He can't remedy being a slave, and it looks like he's been abandoned by God and by his family. And then in chapter thirty nine, we could say that he has a lot of reasons to be a lot of things. Like you wouldn't blame Joseph if he was angry, if he was bitter. We wouldn't blame him if he, if he felt hopeless. We wouldn't blame him if he just wanted to give up. He'd done nothing wrong and now he is a, a powerless slave in Egypt. And who could blame him if he was angry and bitter? But he's none of those things. And we'll see this in the weeks to come. But we can say this right now looking ahead. Here's a man who makes a different choice. He decides to trust God. He decides to trust that even in that difficult place, God is with him and working. And in fact, we'll see in Joseph, there are never hints of hatred. There are no uh, signs of bitterness. He has no plans for revenge, right? Like how many of us, if we were stuck in a situation like that because of what someone did to us, how many of us could imagine if the day came and we were face to face with our brothers who did this, what we would do, what we would say, how we would get revenge. But again, as we'll see, there's none of that And Joseph, in fact later on when he reunites with his brothers and not to give away the story too much but you probably know it and they will get together and you'll notice he has the power to punish them but instead he has nothing but forgiveness and mercy and grace and he blesses them and he serves them and he protects them. But in chapter 39 verse 1 the story goes on and it tells us this. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt right, well all that's going on with Judah and the family and Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. So Joseph is taken into Egypt. He's purchased by a guy named Potiphar, who lives in a house of power and influence, and as we'll see, of great opportunity for Joseph. Verse 2, And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord had caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so we're going to see that Joseph is a, is a successful slave. Now that sounds weird in our culture, right? To say someone was a successful slave. Because our culture, I think by and large, rejects the idea that someone could be in such a position and yet be blessed or, or successful. But here's Joseph, right? What would we say in our culture? Well, the only way he can be successful is if he's not a slave anymore. He's got he's to name his victimhood and get out of that, right? And yet, what do we have here? We have a man who is a slave and yet is blessed. Who has no power and yet is successful, Now, this doesn't justify slavery by any means, but what it shows us is this, that God is bigger than even our worst circumstances, than even the worst things that we'll ever find ourselves in. God is bigger and God is sovereign and God is working. And the key to Joseph's success is this, and we're told this two times already, the Lord was with him. That's why he's successful. God is at the center of Joseph's story. It is God who is going to make Joseph Successful, But Joseph has a role to play. Right? And unlike his brother Judah, who didn't trust the Lord when it came to Tamar, right? and unlike Onan, who doesn't trust the Lord, and unlike even Tamar, who doesn't trust the Lord and has to take matters into her own hands, Joseph chooses to do the opposite. Joseph, instead of being deceitful and lying and, and whatever he can to get out of the situation, decides to trust God, even in a difficult situation. Even when it looked like God had abandoned him, he chose to trust God. Even in his slavery, he chose to trust God. Even when he was separated from his family and had no rights, he chose to trust God in that situation. He trusted God. He didn't give up. As we'll see, he never complains. It's amazing to think about what he's going through and he never complains. He he never gripes. He, instead, he, he works hard. He has integrity in everything that he does. He doesn't demand his rights. He doesn't plot revenge. Going on in verse 4. So Joseph found favor in, the sight, in his sight, that is Potiphar's, and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, The Lord blessed the Egyptian house for Joseph's sake. This is a promise that God made to Abraham. He says, those who bless you, I will bless. And so what's happening is Potiphar is basically blessing Joseph and he's being blessed in return. And the blessing of the Lord was on all that that he had in house and in field. And so he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. The point is this that Joseph becomes an agent of God's blessing to other people while Joseph is a slave. I find most of us don't find that truly satisfying. When we're in a difficult situation, we're hurting, when we're suffering and God's blessing other people through us, right? Cuz we want to be the blessed ones. And most of us are more than happy to bless others as long as we're blessed. But Joseph is different. He is in a difficult circumstance and God is using him as a channel of blessing to other people. Potiphar realizes that the best way to manage his affairs was to leave it in in charge of Joseph. Now we'll continue this story next week. In fact, we'll go back to verse 1 and retrace this stuff next week. But I want to just kind of wrap this up by talking, what about us? What does this mean for us today? And the, the big idea that I want to talk about for a minute as we wrap this up is this. That we need to be people who learn to make the most of the meantime. So I'm going to call it the meantime. time. If you've ever been, right, so here's, here's Judah and, and Israel and they're all living their lives and they're going on with their lives and they're making messes of their lives and then God's coming in and blessing them. But in the meantime, Joseph is a slave. It's his it's his meantime. It's the time between when he was a, a son of privilege and free and the time in the future when he will be the second most powerful person in Egypt. But right now, he's in between that. He's in what I would call in the meantime. Everyone else is going on with their lives. And here's Joseph, a slave. He's in between the good stuff. He's feeling sidelined. And maybe... You can relate a little bit to Joseph right now. Maybe you feel like you're in the meantime in some area in your life. Maybe you're just waiting for something to get over. You ever feel like that? Like I just need to get this to get over so I can get on with my life. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people say, "I just can't wait till COVID gets over." You know, and then I can take my mask off and get on with my life. I know people have kind of been waiting for that, like waiting. You know, sometimes people say, "I can't wait till I'm out of school," and then when I'm out of school, then because school's kind of like a prison, and then I can get on and I can really live in life. For some people, it's like, you know, once I get a job or once I get a a better job or then I can get on with life or, you know, once I get a date or once I get married or once we have kids or once we don't have kids anymore or, you know, once we'll retire. You know, I hear this from people a lot of times, like I'm just trying to get through this time and then once I get through this time, then I can really start living my life. But right now, I'm just trying to get through it. Do you feel like you're in some situation in life right now? Where your goal is just to get through it? Like you're just marking time. It's on the calendar. And pretty soon I'll be done with this and I'll get on with life. Here's a big message I get from Joseph. Don't waste the meantime. Make the most of the meantime when you find yourself in it. Don't just wait for it to pass. I know sometimes it feels like it's just something to endure. But as we see with Joseph, it's actually an opportunity. And Joseph, we could could maybe put it this way. In the meantime, while everyone else is getting on with their life and Joseph is a slave, we could say this. He's, he's kind of planting seeds in, in his life, in his world. They're, they're little seeds because he's a slave. But seeds of faith, uh, seeds of faithfulness and, and seeds of integrity we'll see next week. And these, these little seeds that he's planting along the way while he's a slave are going to produce gigantic results in the future. He will end up becoming a successful manager of Potiphar's house. And he will move on to become a successful prisoner. (laughs) It doesn't sound like a, it sounds kind of like a lateral move, but we'll see how it's not. Uh, He'll be successful as the second in charge of the nation of of Egypt. But he'll be more than that. He'll be what we might call a successful brother. A blessing to his brothers. He'll be a successful son in, in so many Uh, ways that we could think of and to an entire nation. But he's in the meantime, right? Right now he's a slave. Right now he's not free. What do we do in the meantime? There's a lot of things we can do, but I've noted a few verses I want to just highlight before we close here in your notes. A couple that just really spoke to me this week about how to live in the meantime. The first one is Ephesians 5, 15. Notice what Paul says. Look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, and that's how his family's living, but as wise. Making the best use, the best use of the time that you have, because the days are evil. And so sometimes we find ourselves in the meantime. Sometimes we find ourselves in what feels like a time between really good things. But this is not a good thing. And I think part of what Paul's telling us in Ephesians is this. There may be things that you can't do right now. Right? Maybe, maybe you're stuck at home right now I know some people are watching this online and you feel like you're stuck and, or maybe you're unemployed right now so there's a lot of stuff you can't do maybe you lack funds right now or the health that you would like right now or maybe you lack some free time or you're stuck in some situation that you can't fix and there's things you can't do right? there's always things you can't do but here's my question what are the things that you can do what are the things that you can do right now to bless other people Right? Who could you bless? Who, who could you serve in some way today? Who could you encourage in their faith? Who could you just call or send a text to or have lunch with? Who could you influence for the gospel? Right? Who around you needs to be encouraged to, with the gospel right now? Maybe through your faith or through your words or through your actions. You know, when you're going through a difficult time in life and, and the words that come out of you are words of faith and encouragement, that's, that's powerful with the people around you. Never underestimate the power you have to influence other people even in the meantime. Uh, this last week on Tuesday, I had my I had to go see my doctor. It's just my yearly well check thing. And I don't know about you, but when I go to the doctor, they're always like, you know, make sure that you're on time and make sure that you're not late. Make sure you're here early so you can sit around and wait for a half hour. Right? That's usually how it goes with my doctor. So I and I know this. So I kind of went in and I got checked in and I sat down and I knew I was probably going to have 15 or 20 minutes. And because so because I was working on the sermon, I was thinking to myself, I kind of have a little micro meantime for the next. 15 to to 30 minutes I'm just gonna sit here I'm stuck here right you can't like I can't go get some coffee or something I'm stuck there it's a little mini me time so I decided I'm gonna make the most of it so I started by Calling someone on the phone who I knew was having a rough month and I just called them and I said, you know, my doctor might come out and get me. Very doubtful, but they might come out in the next few minutes. So and we just had a conversation and I encouraged them and then I sent off a couple of texts to people who I knew were going through some tough stuff to encourage them with some scripture, and then I spent some time praying, and then eventually my doctor came out and got me. But I, I the best part was I felt like I got to make the most of that little micro me time. Did Just use that to bless people and we all have that ability to be able to use even the little mean times that we have to be able to bless and to be able to serve in colossians 3 it tells us this whatever you do right whatever you do today wherever you are work heartily as for the lord and not for men Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as, as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I love this. This is Joseph, right? Joseph is doing his work as a slave, as unto God. Even in the meantime, even in this menial thing where he's powerless, Joseph is like, I'm going to do it as unto the Lord and make it something significant. And, and in the context of Colossians, Paul applies this concept to wives and to husbands, and to children, and to parents, and employees, and employers. Paul says, whoever you are, wherever you are, take whatever advantage you can, whatever time you can, and use that as if you're serving the Lord, because you are. One more verse, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Uh, Great, great verse here. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. People ask me sometimes, what's God's will for my life? There it is. Here's God's will for you. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. Again, this is Joseph in a nutshell. See, God's will for you, even in the meantime, even in the in-between times, is still the same. Rejoicing, praying. So what does rejoicing mean basically? Rejoicing in the meantime, in the hard times, is basically the act of a soul that trusts God that trust the sovereignty of God, that trust the goodness of God. How else could you rejoice in a difficult circumstance unless you really believe that God is there and that God is with you? And it's a way of declaring when you rejoice in the Lord that you believe that God is sovereign and you believe that God is good and you believe that he's working on your behalf, even if you can't see it now. And then he talks about praying. So what is praying? Praying is just the exercise of a soul that trusts God. I'm just saying, God, I, I'm in this situation and it's hard and it's tough, and, uh, but I'm bringing it to you. Why would you bring it to God? Because you believe he can do something about it. Because you believe he's sovereign and that, that he's good. But notice what it says. Rejoicing and praying and giving thanks in all circumstances, in good times, in hard times, in prime time, in meantime, wherever you are, this is God's will for you. And this is Joseph. Now I would say this, if you, if you feel like you have nothing to be thankful for, right, then you're not paying attention and scripture encourages us again and again to be people who pay attention to the things in our life that we have to be thankful for Uh, I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago Uh, I mentioned I injured my uh, shoulder and I was at the physical therapist and kind of went through all the janking and all that kind of stuff and we got to the end when I was in a lot of pain and she said we're just going to ice the shoulder and just you know just lay down here for 15 minutes and when it's done someone will come in and get you and you can leave and so just laying there on the table with ice on there and I'm praying for a few minutes and then I can kind of at the at the office I can hear other conversations happening in other rooms and with other uh, clients and talking to therapists and so I'm just kind of kind of listening and and I hear somebody talk and they'd just fallen down and they broke their hip and so they're kind of getting through that that was really painful and really tough and someone else had just had a knee replaced and so that was hard and someone else was dealing with some other issues and I'm kind of listening now when I went into the the physical therapist's office that day, I was thinking I had it pretty bad. But as I was sitting there listening, I suddenly realized I think I was the healthiest person in that building. And I realized I actually had a lot to be thankful for. And when somebody came in at the end and got me and said, are you ready to go? And I'm like, yeah, I'm feeling great. And she said, are y'all better? I'm like, no, but I'm better than all these people, you know? So I realized I had a lot to be thankful for. And I just would say that we are blessed people. We are blessed even in the hard times, even in the meantime. And, and Paul says to us, give thanks. Give thanks in all circumstances. In Genesis 39, Joseph is living in the meantime. He is a slave. He's kind of living in the valley, not the mountaintop, right? He's between being the favorite son and being the second in charge of, of Egypt. But he's making the most of it. He makes the most of his meantime. He leverages that. Where do you need to do that today? Is there some place in your life right now where you're like, I just kind of feel like I'm stuck in the meantime. My encouragement for you today is make the most of it. It is an opportunity, an opportunity to serve God and others and to plant seeds of faith that will be a blessing to you in the future. I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna close with a song and worship the Lord together. Father God, we thank you for our time this morning in this, this weird, strange Uh, Chapter 38 of Genesis. But we love the big message that in spite of all the dumb, stupid, evil things that people do, you are a God who is bigger than all of that. And for those of us who love you, you are bigger than the dumb things that we do. You are bigger than our sin and you can can work all things for the good of those who love you and who have been called according to your purpose. Father, I I pray for us this morning that in, in the same way that, that Judah is able to recognize and, and confess his sin, that we would, we would be quick to do that in our lives. But I also pray for us that we would be like Joseph who realizes he is not stuck in the meantime, but he has been placed there with a great opportunity. And I pray because, Father, I know that just Statistically, there are all sorts of people in this room and at home today who are in the meantime right now. There's some area in their life where they feel stuck or or, or prisoner or powerless to get out of. And yet I pray today that we would see that that's actually an opportunity for us. It's op- an opportunity to recognize your nearness and your goodness and to speak words of faith and words of praise and words of gratefulness. and and to trust you. To trust you to bring something good out of a difficult time. And so I pray for us today, Father, that you will imbue us with faith and with thankfulness and with peace and with praise. I pray that we will go from here today being those who are determined in Christ by faith to make the most of the meantime. In Jesus' name we pray.